book of Hosea. And this song could have been written for Hosea. Now before we go into the book, I have to uh, just add on to some announcement. Uh, there's some information not in your bulletin that we thought would be there. The Samaritan's Feet Project starts at 3.30 tomorrow afternoon. Not at noon, as it says, so correct that. The second thing <clears throat> is that um, today we have over 700, no, there are 300, over 350 pairs of shoes. That's over 700 shoes, I'm quick at math. Um, and uh, they need to be sorted out. I don't know what that means. But if you can help today, there'll be when Eric in the gym at the mission home? At what time? Okay, shortly after the service, so after you've had something to uh, eat and talk to some people downstairs, if you want to wander across the street, you can go over there and help and, and help to sort through these things and get ready for this project. We anticipate quite a day, and it's a great way of serving people. So we invite you to join and be a part of that as well. And let us know if you're planning to come. It's also good for us to know who to look for. And if you find out the last minute you have time, uh, you can come along as well. I have to tell you that I was looking through the list of, of books that I've studied and preached on over the years, and I have referred to Hosea periodically, but I have never preached this book. And there's a reason, it's because I don't like the story. It's a heartbreaking story. I don't like to tell it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to use the words that are in the story. But it's God's word. It's necessary for us to hear it. God wants us to see ourselves in the light of this family in particular. And we're going to look at the first three chapters today. And the first three chapters basically tell the story of Hosea and his wife and, and their family. And as we read this story, uh, we are going to see our own hearts exposed. That's why the title of this particular message is Your Cheating Heart. And the title for the series about the book of Hosea comes from the first song that we sang, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And there's a line in there that has stuck with me for years. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's us. We are inclined to wander from the God who is our Savior. And we need to hear, we need to enter into the pain of Hosea, we need to hear about his life. And so I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Hosea. <clears throat> and I want to read the first chapter, which is the first part of Hosea's story. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. I want to stop there and come back to the story. 
This is a story about the human heart and our relationship with the living God. It's depicted for us in one family. It's almost as if someone put together a series for television and we followed a family. And we watched this family from the days of joy and we watched the family then begin to disintegrate. And this is what we see in the life of Hosea. Spiritual adultery breaks the heart of God. If when you read this story it breaks your heart, good. It should. Because it breaks God's heart when God's people are unfaithful to him. And we are prone to wander, every one of us. We're prone to wander in all kinds of ways, large and small, from the living God. This story takes place in Israel. And when I talk about Israel in this story, we're talking about the northern kingdom. By this time, the nation of Israel had been divided by civil war. And it is now two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, two separate kingdoms. God has sent his prophets to both kingdoms, speaking to them. At the same time that Hosea was preaching in Israel, Isaiah was down in Judah, bringing the same kind of message to the people of the southern kingdom and reminding them, warning them of the judgment of God. This takes place about 700 years before the birth of Christ. As the first verse tells us, it spans the reign of four kings in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And also then, I'm sorry, four kings in Judah and one king, Jeroboam, in Israel. This is a time of spiritual and political turmoil. It is not a safe time. And yet, strangely enough, there was economic prosperity in the midst of the turmoil. Their society was fragmented. It was breaking apart. And they were confused. They didn't know why. Israel was under constant threat of invasion from Assyria. This, they had been staging raids into the country. So there was not a feeling of safety in the northern kingdom at all. This matter of Baal, this god called Baal, if you've read, read the scriptures at all, you've come across this name, B-A-A-L. And Baal was a god, a Canaanite god. He was a god of weather and fertility. Supposedly, he controlled the weather, and therefore, he controlled the crops that were able to be produced. He was worshipped in many locations. And as you read in, in scripture, you find, if you look up the word Baal, you will find Baal hyphen and then you'll find the names of all kinds of cities afterwards because he was worshipped all over the place. You remember one of the false prophets talked about in the book of Numbers is a man named Balaam. And he was from Baal Peor. That's the city where Baal was worshipped. And he influenced the nation of Israel that corrupted them for generations with his advice about the worship of Baal. His name, the name Baal, means Lord or Owner. And so throughout Hosea, you find the prophet using this word and making a play on the word. The, the portion that Nathan read a little while ago, he said, No longer will you call your husband Baal or Lord. And here now we find this God. 
He's also known in other places in Scripture as Beelzebub. He is a demon. He's a demonic god. The ESV Study Bible explains this about the religion. The religion's appeal was to human sexuality. Other aspects of Baal worship, such as drunkenness, bestiality, human sacrifice, mutilations, and incest, may be discerned in the book. But Hosea understands the strength of Baal's appeal to the sex drive by way of ritual prostitution. This amounted to sexual intimacy at one of the pagan shrines. This was the way that they thought that they influenced Baal and the weather. And they got fertility in the soil. Sexual behavior dominated at these shrines, and it was expected to cause the Baals to respond in a like manner. The intimacy took place with cult prostitutes. There were people whose job it was. They were at the places where Baal was worshipped. And there was often a prayer that was said before sexual acts took place. There was also eating and drinking at the shrines as acts of worship. Baal worship included human sacrifice, including that of children. That's just kind of a sanitized version of what was going on. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to think about it. I have a book on my shelf that for many years I turned it around so you couldn't see the title of it. It, was a, it is a study that a godly man did of this concept that runs all through the Old Testament of whoredom. I was kind of embarrassed about this, you know? We don't like it when rappers talk about it. Why should we Christians have that? And so I had this book. And I've read the book several times, and it's right. He has picked up the theme that occurs all the way through from Deuteronomy on of the unfaithfulness of the human heart to the living God. And so this word comes up, and if it offends you, I'm sorry for that. I wish it wasn't here. I wish I could dance around it. I wish I could give it another word, but I can't do it. Baal's, Baal worship by Israel violated the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Not one or two. No other gods before me. And we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are so much more advanced and sophisticated than those primitive people, those foolish people. We know so much more than them. We would never do such foolish things. Not so. It's not so. The human heart has not changed. We still are also consumed with the pursuit of sexuality and sexual relations. It sells everything from automobile automobiles to drugs and all kinds of things. We also sacrifice our babies. Don't think we are above the Canaanite people. We also worship gods of convenience. We get drunk. We turn to our gods of luck. We have our Santeria, our Botanicas, and our tarot cards. We are not any different from the people of Israel. We are lured into this. We are driven in the same direction. And all of this for the same reason that the people of Israel did it. They wanted happiness. They wanted completeness. They wanted life to be good. And so they thought they had to do something to make it happen. They thought they had to help God. 
and they followed the God that promised what they wanted. There's a book called The Lost Virtue of Happiness by J.P. Moreland and Klaus Isler. And they have, he has a significant part in the first chapter here. He talks about the American Declaration of Independence. He says, when the Declaration of Independence says we have a right to the pursuit of happiness, the authors meant what almost everybody had meant prior to that time. So when we read the Declaration of Independence today, we, we change the intent of the authors. We have a new meaning of the pursuit of happiness. It's not what they intended. It's not what they intended. Because here is where their thinking came from. The Founding Fathers looked to the 18th century English jurist, William Blackstone, for wisdom and where, about where happiness comes from. And he wrote, the Creator has so intimately connected, so inseparably woven the laws of eternal justice with the happiness of each individual that the latter cannot be attained but by observing the former. And if the former be punctually observed, obeyed, it cannot but induce the latter. That's heavy language. Let's say it another way. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Or as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will follow after. All these things will be given to you. It is still the appeal to the human heart and to the Christian heart to this day. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that you desire, all the happiness that you long for will follow afterwards. But you cannot, by the pursuit of happiness alone, find that. You won't find happiness. You must first find and seek the kingdom of God. Then you will begin to uncover and discover happiness. So this book is a strong warning to us in America and to American Christians. When we look at the disasters that our nation has endured, there have been three major things that have occurred to us in, uh, to, in the last few years. We have September 11th, we have Hurricane Katrina, and we have an economic collapse. Wake up, America. Wake up. God is talking to us. He is telling us. We are pursuing happiness in all the wrong places. And we know now that our military can't protect us from attack. We are not invincible. We know now that we are helpless in the onslaught of nature unleashed. We can't do anything about it. We also know that our bank accounts are not safe. All the security you might think you have somewhere is just paper and it's going to blow away. We know that. God is talking to us. And so in the story of Hosea, we have to hear this. We have to hear God's call. Now, God asks Hosea, and oh, that he asked the prophet to do this. I mean, I read about Hosea and Jeremiah, especially, and the other prophets. God asked them to do hard things. God told Hosea, go get married, verse 2. Told him, go and get married. Now, Hosea... His name is another form of the word Joshua, the name Joshua. Also, that name in Greek is Jesus. It means Savior, one who saves. And so here God is speaking to Hosea and says, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom. What kind of invitation is that? Go get married. And this is the kind of wife you need to choose. You need to choose a woman who will not be faithful to you. Now, I don't think that when Hosea's marriage started out, that 
Gomer, the woman he chose, was what she became. That statement to Hosea to go choose that wife was more prophetic. This is what's going to unfold, Hosea. You need to have your eyes open. Now, every couple that gets married enters into a great unknown. I'm convinced from having talked to many couples after they've been married and talking to them after the wedding and after they get back from their honeymoon and asking them, and from my own experience, you drive away from the wedding and the first question that is in both minds in that car is, who in the world is that? Who is this woman? Who is this guy? I mean, I thought I knew. We went out on dates. We spent time together. I thought I knew. But who is this? Because now we're bound together. It's like we're bound one another. We're connected together. Who is this? Who is this one? And it's a frightening thing. It's a frightening idea to realize that you've committed your life to someone else. And so it seems that God was revealing to Hosea the answer to that question. Gomer means complete. The name can be a blessing name, a name of blessing, but it also could be indicating something about the heart of the woman, that ultimately her unfaithfulness would be complete in many ways. Hosea's marriage began well. We read that they married, verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and they, she conceived and bore him a son. The language here is very important to understand. It was their child. They together had a child. But then God continues to be involved in this marriage, and he tells them, here's what you're going to name this child. I want you to name your son Jezreel. You and I, we hear Jezreel, goes over our head. Doesn't mean anything to us. If I say to you, September 11th, Pearl Harbor, it goes right to the heart. It speaks to us as a nation. If you speak to someone in Scotland about Culloden Moor, you immediately see a change in their character. Jan and I were in a taxi cab riding to a place we were going to stay, a castle in, in uh, northern Scotland, and we rode past this place and the driver said, there is Culloden Moor. I missed it. What's that? I had to ask him, I said, I hope you forgive me, but I don't understand, what is that? That's the place where the British army killed 2,000 Scottish independence freedom fighters as they saw themselves. You could look over the field, they preserved the field, and there's the flags where all the clans died. 2,000 slaughtered there. To the Scottish mind, Culloden Moor, right to the heart. To the heart of Israel, the name Jezreel went right to the heart. Jezreel was the place where King Ahab, the worshiper of Baal and other gods because of Jezebel, his wife, and the influence that she had over him and that he allowed and wanted, Ahab saw a vineyard that was next to his property. And he liked that vineyard. He wanted to expand his property a little bit. He went to the owner, a guy named Naboth, and he said, Naboth, sell me the field. And Naboth said, I can't. It's in our family. It's part of our heritage. I can't sell it to you. And Ahab went home and sulked. Says he went to bed and he turned his face to the wall. And Jezebel came in and said, Ahab, you're the king. What's going on? And he said, I, I asked this guy to sell me the field and he won't do it. And Jezebel said, don't you worry. I'll take care of this. And she went out and she framed Naboth. She got together with some people of reputation in the town and said, hey, throw a big banquet for Naboth. Put him at the head of the table. 
And when he's there in the middle of the celebration, arrange for a couple of guys to get up and point their finger at him and say, Naboth did this. Naboth blasphemed against God. And that's exactly what happened. And they took Naboth out and stoned him to death. And Jezebel came back to Ahab and says, Now take your field. Take your vineyard. It's yours. In the city of Jezreel. Take your vineyard. It was the picture of a heart driven by greed, self-centeredness, and shame. And Ahab took the field. You know that Ahab and his generation so angered God that God judged his generation and said his kingdom, his dynasty would not continue. It would end. God raised up a man named Jehu who at the direction of God carried out, carried out a, a terrible slaughter. He slaughtered Ahaziah. He slaughtered Joram, the king of Israel. He slaughtered Ahaziah's mother, who was Jezebel. And then he went on to oversee the execution of the 70 royal sons that survived of Ahab, and then all the surviving relatives of Ahab. And from there he met the relatives of King Ahaziah from uh, Judah, and he killed all of them as well. Jezreel was associated with national blood, shame, and disgrace, and disaster. And God said to Hosea, name your son, your first son, name him Jezreel. God was preparing the people of Israel for what was to come. God told him, take a wife, knowing that she would be unfaithful. This is not merely a woman with a wandering heart, but she sought sexual relations with men, and if worse, if it could be worse, she was willing to pay others to do it. The most polite word that I wish I could use to describe Gomer and what she became was to say she was a prostitute. But that doesn't capture the essence of what God is trying to communicate. This was not an economic proposition. This was a heart proposition. This was what she wanted. She wanted to be unfaithful. She wanted to be unfaithful to her husband. And unfortunately, the only word that applies to describe the heart condition, the only word that we have, is this word whore. It revealed who she was. A second child was born, in verses 6 and 7. It tells us that this second child came and uh, she conceived again and bore a daughter. But notice the change in language. She did not bear him a daughter. She had a daughter. Evidently, this was not Hosea's child. And God said to Hosea, name her no mercy. I know parents who get big, thick books before their children are born, and they study, and they read the names, and they, they say them out loud, and they say them to people around them, and they look for the effect that it might have on, on that child and what they want that name to say. They put all kinds of energy into that. But I do not know anyone who would choose a name like this for their first daughter. No mercy no mercy. God wanted, maybe a child would be called mercy, but not no mercy. But that's the name that God chose for this child. God said that he revealed to Hosea why. He said, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel and forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save the them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
God was saying, I'm going to save Judah and it's going to be by my strength. Not by military might. I'm going to save them. I'm going to rescue them. And when Assyria comes in and takes away the kingdom of Israel, Judah will be safe, but not because they're so strong militarily, but because I'm protecting them. For the time being, their hearts are still with me. Assyria was about to pounce. God's reasoning in calling this child no mercy is that he has a bigger goal in mind, bigger than Hosea's family. Certainly he loved Hosea, but his love is complete in one man, but also bigger than any one person. When you read this story and your heart begins to break as you discover the pain, I mean, what would Hosea say when that child grew up? Come here, no mercy. Come here. God loves you intensely. And his love and plan is the very best for you, but it also is bigger than you. In the same way that God loved Hosea and was not wounding him for his own to hurt Hosea, but because God had a bigger plan that he wanted to carry out. He had a message. God so loved the whole world that he gave his son that whoever, an individual, believes in him will not perish. God's patience with Israel was at an end. They had been rebelling against him for generation after generation, and there would be no remedy except judgment from God. It was about to come. But look at verse 7. But, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And he says that there is a place of mercy still in his heart. Although his mercy had run out for Assyria, there still was mercy, uh, for, for Israel, there still was mercy for Judah. And he wanted Judah to get the message as well that he alone is their deliverer. It's the same message for you and I. The only one that can rescue you, the only one that can save you, the only one that can keep you is God alone. He must keep you. You can't keep yourself. You're not strong enough to do it. Well, a third child is born in verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And notice the language again. She didn't bear the son to Hosea. Evidently, she was unfaithful again. And God said, give her another name, give this child this name. Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Every time he thought of his son, his heart would break not only for his son, but for his whole nation. This child was named Lo-Ami in Hebrew, not my people. They were unfaithful, just as Gomer had been unfaithful. Verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. God, in the midst of announcing judgment upon Israel, is saying, I'm going to keep my word. You have utterly failed your part of the covenant. I will keep my word. God had promised to Abraham that their nation, the nation would be as the sand of the sea, on the seashore. Now, there's hope in God alone. I love the way that God always follows judgment with hope. As you read the prophets, you find that he always does this. He says, this is going to happen, but I am going to rescue you. God always keeps his word. You may now be reaping the consequences 
of rebellious choices that you have made against God. God has allowed that because he loves you too much to let you continue down that road without bringing you back as he was doing with Israel. He wanted to bring them back and he wanted to give them that glimmer of hope. Judgment is coming now. Hold on. I'm going to be faithful to you though you have been utterly unfaithful to me. Chapter 2 takes a break in the story. It's a um, strong break. It changes, it just interrupts the whole thing. And he has four accusations that he gives against Israel in this chapter. The message of chapter 2, if I were to sum up this, these 13 verses, is that when you are unfaithful, you wound the heart of God. It's not for nothing that the writer to the Hebrews warns us against drifting. Beware lest you drift. It isn't that the people of Israel set out to walk and turn their backs on God. They drifted. One step here, one step here, one step here, and before they knew it, God was way back there. They drifted. And the warning is against drifting. I long for the days of Jonathan Edwards when sermons could be preached for hours on end. I thought that I could safely do three chapters today and then move on. Obviously that's not true. I, I want to stop here and pick up chapter two because it's too significant to not talk about. I'll pick it up next week. In chapter two, God goes into the courtroom, the divorce court. And in the divorce court, he lays out his case against his unfaithful wife, Israel. We've already looked at Hosea's family and the meltdown in the family, and God says now there are going to be formal proceedings. You and I are going to be separate. I will not be your husband any longer, Israel. I will not endure your unfaithfulness. There's a video I want us to look at here, and then I'll come back and kind of wrap this up. It's something that someone showed me from one of my favorite contemporary preachers, John Piper. He's talking about the pursuit of happiness. I believe this is a response to this book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, that he wrote. But I want us to look at this for a few moments as we close this up. This idea of the pursuit of happiness and where does it come from. Let's, let's watch the video now. Christ look great. Answer, 